Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershank. Today I'm speaking with Professor Stephen Hicks. Professor Hicks is philosophy professor as well as the executive director at the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship at Rockford University. But before I get into that, I have some announcements to make. Agora Politics is dedicated to unearthing new theories of politics. With this in mind, it's important to remember that our primary goal here is an intellectual, truth-seeking, and ultimately a spiritual one. I created this show because I believe that magical things happen when individuals can engage with one another in a true one-on-one dialogue. There's also the felt sense that goes along with this mission of the show. The systems we've been operating in and the frameworks in which our politics are consumed are no longer working for us. For that reason, this show is explicitly not a current event show. Unlike other political podcasts, which are tracking, commenting on, critiquing, and reflecting on current events of the day, that is not our, our primary purpose here. And so, although we don't wish to maintain the illusion that the podcast is existing in some kind of vacuum independent of current events going on, if we focus down too much on what's currently happening in our politics, we're going to get lost within the very same systems, frameworks, and outdated mindsets that we're trying to escape. In order for any kind of rational, humanistic, and ultimately transcendental transformation to happen in our perceptions of our world and our perceptions of each other and ourselves, we have to first not be playing the same game. Now, I will from time to time include in conversations with guests and in the questions that I ask references that we may date an episode to a particular period of time. I've talked already about the events of the coronavirus and the potential impacts with a few of the guests, although I've not done an episode specifically focused on that. And the reason for that is simply to take the opportunity with the guests that I have to make sense about the situation going on, but also to make sure that we acknowledge that we are still enmeshed in an exterior environment and therefore can't be sitting uh, by ourselves sort of theorizing solipsistically uh, about politics as if it's something that happens in a vacuum. It's true that we are in a particular historical circumstance with a particular um, set of ideas and norms about how we got here and where we are and where we're going. But if we spend too much time focusing on current political disputes, squabbles, mysteries, uh, controversies, etc., we're not really in a position to ever truly get out of the game that we're trying to get out of. This podcast has recognized that in some sense, the games in which we're stuck in ideologically uh, and as far as our identities are concerned are naturally self-terminating games. And that if we must, in order to continue, we must start playing a new game. And that's really what this show is about. Never will the show be focused on being a current event show or specifically on unraveling the controversies and daily qualms and disputes that arise in domestic American politics. We're trying to do something different. We're trying to take a higher plane. And that means that we can't get caught down in the minutia of the daily show. And it is a show. With that being said, let's get on to our episode with Dr. Stephen Hicks. Dr. Hicks is not only a professor of philosophy, but also an author of books including Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism, and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault, Nietzsche and the Nazis, The Art of Reasoning, Readings for Logical Analysis, and Entrepreneurial Living. My primary interest in his work and in having him on today was to look at his work in explaining postmodernism, to assess postmodern philosophy, 
and its role in our current politics. We talked about postmodern epistemology, power, multiculturalism, the paradox of tolerance, the objective-subjective split, metamodernism, and of course, modernism. This was a really enjoyable and insightful episode. I am very grateful that Stephen took the time to pay us a visit and share Mindspace with us today. Lastly, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you believe in what we're doing here at Agora Politics, then please consider supporting the show on Patreon so I can give you more conversations like these and so we, together, can make sense out of our complicated world to get humanity through the bottleneck. Now, without further ado, I give you Dr. Stephen Hicks. Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Stephen Hicks. Stephen is professor of philosophy in the Department of Philosophy, as well as the executive director of the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship at Rockford University in Rockford, Illinois. He's also authored four books, Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault, as well as Nietzsche and the Nazis, The Art of Reasoning, Readings for Logical Analysis, and entrepreneurial living. Uh, Stephen, I wanted to have you on the show today to um, specifically talk about your work in explaining postmodernism mm. and get your insights into sort of the history of postmodern thought and how it's affecting our, our current state of politics. Uh, but before I, before I do that, Stephen, um, I just wanted to uh, let you have a moment to tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you got into this work. Uh, how I got into postmodernism in particular? Yes. Ah, well, I came about it uh, unexpectedly. I finished grad school in the early 90s, and I'd done a lot of the history of philosophy mm-hmm. uh, as an undergraduate. And uh, then for graduate school, uh, my PhD work was mostly technical in epistemology, philosophy of science and uh, uh, related fields, mostly in the analytic tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a side amateur interest in political issues, and so I'd read a lot on the history of socialism and the the Cold War ideological battles. Uh, But what happened when I got my full-time teaching position at, uh, at Rockford was I was teaching in the honors program which was interdisciplinary, and uh, it was for our best, most ambitious students, and they always had two professors who were always in the classroom teaching the course. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, it was great education for me to be paired with literature professors and history professors and science professors, uh, and we were going through the great works of civilization and the great issues. And what happened was I started to uh, find my my professional colleagues were very interested, some of them, in thinkers I did not know very much about. So Foucault and Derrida and Lyotard and others. Uh, And it seemed like there was something substantial there, but also that it was having an impact on literature and history and uh, other related fields. So I figured I should get up to speed on this. This was in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as it turns out, I had a strong philosophy background in epistemology. I had a kind of a good amateur background in uh, political philosophy and, uh, and political history. And so that in combination with my new reading of Foucault, Derrida and the others and the impact they were having uh, led me to think that uh, here was an important new area that uh, was not written on uh, yet, and that I was in a position to uh, to have something to say about it. So I uh, got a sabbatical in 99, 2000, wrote the book, and it came out a few years after that. So that's how I got into it. Okay, okay, excellent. Um, now, I 
I actually discovered your work uh, because I was looking into areas related to, you know, critical theory and post-colonialism and kind of the rise of uh, intersectionality. And what I was most attracted to uh, when I found out about your work, um, specifically the book Explaining Postmodernism, was that you were one of the few thinkers who had actually traced kind of the um, the lineage of ideas that has given rise to these sort of um, more modern forms. And you traced you trace a lot of these these, uh, I guess, um, cultural movements back to their roots in postmodernism. Can you mm-hmm. can you describe a little bit how that transition take place? How do we go from Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard, Rorty to um these sort of more uh, contemporary manifestations of postmodern epistemology that aren't necessarily grounded in them, but have sort of uh, taken on taken on a lot of their precepts. Right. So one of the interesting things in intellectual history is how very abstract ideas get translated into religious practice, uh, personal practice in people's lives, artistic practice, political practice, and and so on. And that certainly is the case with uh, postmodernism. Postmodernism came to be kind of an integrated package of ideas, some epistemological skepticism and some early collective identity theories and undermining individual agency, uh, some issues in uh, kind of normative issues and and metaethics that our values are instilled in us through deterministic group processes and that are not objective. So there was a whole constellation of philosophical positions that came to be packaged together in the 50s and 60s that we come to call postmodernism. And all of this is still pretty much at the level of high theory. It's uh, academics arguing philosophically and integrating their uh, theories from sociology and psychology and, and, and other fields. But it also was a politicized movement because you know, at the same time, uh, there's a lot of per- political ferment going on in the 50s and the 1960s. People are becoming more uh, cynical and uh, in some cases in despair about the experiment in the Soviet Union. Those who had been thinking that uh, kind of Marxian socialism was the wave of the future and that the Russians, uh, having been taken over by the Soviets, uh, were going to, to, to show the world the way, but the bloom was seriously off the rose by the time we get to the 50s and 60s. Uh, and so you see the burgeoning new left breaking away from the old left. Uh, there's a great deal of concern about the Cold War and whether you know, liberal democracy and capitalism have the resilience and the resources to be able to withstand that that threat and uh, with all of the high aspirations of the enlightenment and uh, life liberty and the pursuit of happiness for for all whether the united states had lived up to its ideals and so what was part and parcel of the postmodern approach as it was formulated in the 50s and 60s was not just here are some abstract philosophical assumptions about human nature, values, and, uh, and, and, and epistemology, but an idea that we do need a new kind of political strategy uh, more in keeping with the, the fractured times and the disillusioned times of the, the 1960s. So the question then becomes, you know, what's that new strategy going to be? And as it turns out, particularly among the, the left, uh, it was brilliant thinkers such as Foucault and Richard Rorty and Derrida, who uh, are well-trained, very articulate, uh, able to assume a kind of intellectual leadership uh, uh, that was that was international. Then there are professors, but uh, professors whose books are being widely read by other smart people. And those are people who then go on to become teachers and professors of education who then start to think seriously about what kind of education uh, system we should have in place. Some of them go on to be journalists and to rethink what journalism should mean. Some of them become, of course, political activists. 
Some of them go into literature and the arts. And so postmodernism stops so much being an intellectual movement and much more an activist movement. And that's about where we are right now. Okay. Now the, the, yeah, the stages, though, I think are that um, uh, in going from intellectual movements to activist movements, uh, postmodernism is unique in some respects because what it tells you is, you know, there are no true narratives uh, and there are no meta narratives. Instead, what we have is subjective na narratives that are much smaller and much more local. Uh, so that means when you start to apply that in practice, that you're not going to be looking for universal principles of justice or even expecting that there can be one coherent, say, legal system or one coherent political system that we're all going to share. Mm -hmm. So you should expect a certain amount of balkanization or fractioning and the idea that different groups have their own sense of what justice is and their own interests and politics then stops being, you're, you're not going to try to make your politics universalistic, rather you're going to expect it to be much more of a, uh, a balkanized battleground. Mm. Uh, if as a matter of abstract political principle, you think there are no objective values, uh, either that they come from God or they're underwritten by human nature uh, or, or, or any facts about human survival needs. If you think it's, it's uh, something that different groups just instill or condition in their youngsters or if they uh, come to be kind of emotionalist reactions uh, to unique circumstances that we all experience, then you're also going to start thinking that you know things like justice and fairness are not universal principles so we shouldn't try to uh, try to, to to seek them and we shouldn't expect the legal system uh, to 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 be searching those out as well uh, if you start to think that cognition is also subjective uh, that there are no such thing as as truth that again, we just have our own narratives. Well, then you're not really going to try very hard to uh, to seek for objective truths. And if you think that there are, uh, you know, just different frameworks, and you can't really talk with people who've been conditioned by a different framework, well, then you're not going to try very hard to talk with people who think about the world differently from the way that you do. If you think that reason is a sham then you're not going to develop your tools of reason very uh, explicitly or expect that reasonable argument is going to prevail. So as uh, those ideas percolate into uh, different aspects of culture, you will see the, the manifestations being much less reason, much less expectation that we can sort out our differences, much less interest in conversation, much less interest in, in, in argumentation, uh, and much less respect for other people's uh, ideas that there are uh, uh, true principles that ought to be sought by everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, so so this is primarily a it, it, the thrust of it is primarily a critique of the idea that we could have any kind of universal values or narratives or experience even. Um, that's part of it, yes. Yes. And then that epistemological claim then has a bunch of ripple effects on the other areas in which you you could possibly be be effective in the world. Um, yes. And so you, you said, okay, uh, if you take on this perspective, you necessarily abandon reason because you don't believe that um, that you can arrive at a mutually beneficial goal through reason. You've, you've abandoned, uh, you know, whatever system of morality might have otherwise, uh, you know, moored you because you don't believe that that system could um, possibly apply to all. You've talked about the abandonment of justice, so on and so forth. Uh, when you take on this perspective, then uh, what is it that they come to then is left to do? Right. There's this tie in with power. How does power become involved in this? Well, yes, uh, yeah, power becomes important. And so, you know, so we start to think back to Nietzsche and Carl Schmitt and others who put 
power at the uh, the center of the equation. And then prior to them, if you go back further, uh, uh, thinkers like Hobbes and Machiavelli, who are also putting power at the center. And everybody is concerned with power, but the, the issue is, do you think that power uh, can be used for good and that power should have limits placed on it to, uh, to, to avoid abuses of power? So that then is to say you're thinking of power in a normative framework. But if your view is that there is no such thing as a general normative framework, an objective normative framework that applies to all human beings, then uh, the idea of talking about good or bad uses of power in any general sense seems rather pointless. And all you're left with is just power. Some people have it, some people have less of it. And uh, in their social interactions, it is only a power struggle and we should set aside all of the normative claims. So it's just amoral power. And you then give a description of the social terrain in terms of a power or sorry, asymmetrical power relations playing themselves out. So one way postmodernism right, is going to manifest itself is just to say, and, and this will sound like an objectivist claim, there's a kind of a performative contradiction issue, but let's set that aside for now. Yeah, there is no truth, there is no justice, there's just power, and we understand the world in terms of a power struggle, uh, and it's going to just be an unending power struggle. Some groups will prevail and some groups won't. The other way it will play out, though, is to say that you know, in this power struggle, uh, you know, all of us find ourselves in a situation where we have a certain amount of social power, whatever that is, that we were born into and or have otherwise acquired. But I do have values, I do have goals, um, and I don't necessarily believe that I can say that my goals are true or the right goals, but they are the goals that I happen to have. I have sympathy for certain things, I'm outraged by certain other things. Mm -hmm. And rather than spending any time, I'll think that this is a waste of time, asking whether my values are the right values, do value clarification, maybe change my mind on things. I'm just going to take my values as they are and make a subjective commitment to trying to realize my values as much as possible in the world. Uh, and then just using whatever power I have at my disposal in the power conflict with other people who are just doing the same thing. And it's just a free for all. But I am just trying to uh, bring my value framework uh, to realization as much as I can. Okay, so it's it's an extremely it, so you're left in an extremely cynical position uh, of having to sort of just solipsistically decide that through sheer force of will you're going to enact uh, whatever values that and and by the way I just want to point out if if you're if you're operating under these principles. You've already also acknowledged that the values that you have have to be arbitrary uh, in a sense, because it's just sort of an accident that you happen to believe them and that you happen yes. to think that they're in your best interest. Yes. Um, so there's a couple of things behind that. One, one is there's the more general epistemological claim that all beliefs are merely subjective narratives. And so you can't just say that your value beliefs are a subset of that. Uh, and sometimes that can then take an individualistic form or a group form. So aside from the epistemological claim, there is often a, a, a view of human nature that mm -hmm. comes along that says, you know, either there is no such thing as human nature, that individuals are constructed by, you know, uh, you know idiosyncratic forces beyond their control, or there are more socialized forms that human beings are more or less plasticine born into groups and those groups shape individuals into being uh, avatars or, or functions of the group. So there can be more individualized idiosyncratic versions or more collectivized versions. Right. So whichever, whichever narrative is more useful to you, uh, whether it's the individualist one or the more collectivist um, variants uh, is going to be the one that you employ. Yes. Um, and one of the things that I'm struggling with here and making the connection to the state of our, our politics, because it is true 
that these ideas have been implicitly adopted. Um, maybe you would say they, they're more explicit than I would. Uh, I'm unclear about that. But uh, where, where do we go from the area of high theory? You've got Foucault, Derrida, Lyotard. Um, I actually did encounter a little bit of Rory uh, in, in the past, and I remember his arguments about, oh, well, everything is just going to be preferences. And, you know, my preferences are, are not any better than your preferences, but you can't criticize my preferences. And if we just all have preferences, we'll magically get along. That was least was the last the last time I read Rorty. That was my interpretation of him. Yeah, so um, Rorty is a is a is a, a more relaxed postmodernist on those value issues. He's grown up in a kind of American left liberal tradition, and uh, you know, if, I don't know if this is cart before the horse or not. But if you start from the position that we do all want to get along with each other, uh, but then we think our value preferences are ultimately arbitrary preferences then what you're going to hope for is a kind of tolerance. If we can just get people to realize that they have value uh, differences, but we still all sort of want to get along with each other, then tolerance becomes an important social value to push. Mm. The problem, of course, then is, you know, then you want to say that tolerance is a universal social value that we should all adopt. Uh, but you can't say that because of your epistemological commitments. And you also can't say that tolerance ought to be a universal value because you've said there are no such thing as universal values. So Rorty does have a, you know, a paradoxical position that he is trying to work out, but you're right that he does want to work out that territory somehow to get people to go in a more tolerant direction. Yeah. So my question is then, where is the shift and who is the generation of thinkers that moved us from the purely intellectual realm, you know, you've got a lot of uh, background. It, it, a lot of this was carried out through um, the history of literary criticism, specifically with, you know, demeaning the idea of any common narratives, getting rid of things like the great man theory of history and so on and so forth. Um, who are the, the set of thinkers beyond the vanguard that move this from high theory into cultural issues? And when does that take place? Yes, uh, I think it takes place starting in the 80s and 90s, most explicitly, the, the, the de decades in which the, uh, the first generation, Foucault, Derrida, Rorty, Leotard, and so on, are prominent is the 60s, but then especially in the 1970s, uh, and then they get taken over by people working in sociology in the 80s and 90s, or literary criticism. Mm -hmm. or uh, anthropology, right, or uh, critical legal theory. And so there are more specific names like Marie Matsuda, right, or Henry Giroux in education, Stanley Fish in both law and in, in literature, and so on. So then you find the big names in, uh, in, in each of those areas. So I think of them as the second generation postmoderns. So the, the first generation, though, would be left with the position, say, the Foucault-Rorty generation, which would be to say, look, all we have is narratives and nobody's narratives are, uh, no one's narrative is truer than anybody else's. All we have are preferences and no one's preferences are objectively better than anyone else's. And that's just where things are. And that does seem to support uh, everybody is equally ignorant, everybody's in an equal uh, epistemological and moral status. What that lends itself to is uh, to go down one level of abstraction, a kind of multiculturalism, where, and I say a kind of multiculturalism, it's the brand that says there's just all of these different cultures out there, and we shouldn't say that one culture is better than uh, than any other culture and any culture is worse than any culture, but we should have a kind of live and let live attitude toward all cultures and make sure that we're open to, to all of the cultures. But what you find explicitly in the 80s and on into the 90s is that some cultures start to be valorized more than other, others, and some cultures start to be demonized more than others. So this is now the generation of student protests joined by some faculty members at prominent universities where they're talking, for example, about the curriculum 
and saying, hey ho, Western cultures got to go. So the mm -hmm. point there is not just that what we need to do is say, you know, we've spent a lot of time in last generation studying Western culture and, uh, and, and, and saying that Western culture is the best culture, that what we need to do is to say, hey, there's other cultures out there that are pretty good as well, and let's make room for those other cultures in the curriculum. The shift now then is to second generation postmoderns who are wanting to say, well, there are all of these other cultures out there, but we now see higher education as a battleground within which what we want to do is assert our subculture and make it dominant. And so if I don't see myself as an advocate of Western culture or I'm an enemy of Western culture, Western culture is not just one more culture that I want to uh, you know, allow on the curriculum. I actually want to get rid of that other culture. So all of the activists, intellectual and among the students who are explicitly saying we should not be reading anymore the Greeks or Shakespeare and who are then gutting the curriculum of all of those authors and all of those books, that's a clear signal that we're into the second generation of postmoderns. Mm, okay, so you, the second generation decides uh, we're going to start pushing our own subcultures. You get this inversion where the the goal is to bring down the dominant culture um, and the this is the suggestion being that you know we're going to bring not only bring down the, the dominant culture but our specific culture is the one that should be replacing it um, yes I, I was going to to ask you about this natural power vacuum that this epistemology creates specifically in a cross-cultural context um, because if you adopt a sort of culturally relativist position, uh, is it not hard for, let's say, you know, the postmodernist thinkers or the adopters of these cultural um, policies to stand up to something like, uh, let's just give an extreme example, like an Islamic caliphate, for example. Um, if you want to establish a worldwide, you know, Islamic caliphate, and you think that, um, you know, the best thing that could happen to the world is for everyone to... Uh, you know, be forced to adopt adopt Islam. Um, it, did, did they have a, a real response to that, or would it just would they just sort of throw their hands up and say, "Well, it'll be an exercise of whoever's more powerful"? Yeah, now that's that's an interesting question, and it's one of the the strange bedfellows of contemporary politics, where uh, you know most of the people who are coming uh, out of the postmodern tradition are left wingers of a certain sort. And most of them are atheists, and most of them, when they were younger, would uh, would be anti-capitalist, uh, in favor of some kind of socialism. In many cases, uh, they are uh, they they believe that the Western system has not been fair to uh, racial minorities and women. Sure. Uh, so so that's in their that's in their roots. Uh, and so then they become more intellectual about it, but they go down the postmodern route. And so they end up in a skeptical, cynical position. There's no truth. There's no uh, objective value and so forth. But they still have their their uh, their cultural package where they're in favor of the oppressed minorities. They think that religion is a, is a myth that has been used to unfairly to dominate certain people. Right. And so on. So then that's their ideological framework, but then you don't find them vigorously attacking Islamism. Uh, instead, you see them forming alliances with Islamists on all sorts of issues. And it's very hard then to, to wrap your mind around why that might be, why it might be so, because clearly Islamism is a, is a kind of pre-modern uh, worldview. Uh, you know, it, it believes that there are truths that are delivered by revelation from a higher dimension and that we should all be obedient and believes in traditional gender roles and, and, uh, and has certain political manifestations. So, you know, it's not the modern secular, naturalistic, scientific, liberal democracy approach, but it's also not the postmodern approach as well. So it's a third contender 
So then the question is, why might the postmodern leftists be hanging out with uh, people who are coming from that perspective? Now, I don't think there's an intellectually consistent answer to say that, you know, that somehow there's a deep intellectual affinity that's going on. I think it's more of a strategic issue that mm -hmm. people on the postmodern left, they will survey the terrain and they'll say, you know, who are our friends, who are our enemies? And they will say to themselves, obviously, Islamism is an enemy, but kind of modern scientific capitalism is also our enemy. And the question from their perspective is, which is the more dangerous enemy? And I think from their perspective, they will say clearly scientific technological capitalism is the more serious enemy. And so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We will form strategic alliances with the Islamists because we have a joint enemy in bringing down modern capitalism. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we succeed in doing that, uh, there, will, of course, will have to be some sort of free-for-all battle after that, but uh, we hope that we can prevail in that battle after the main enemy has been defeated. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely agree with that analysis. I think it is a situation of uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, um, and that, you know, if you're living inside of a Western culture, uh, yeah. the dominant culture is, is still the one that you are interested in taking out, and, you know, Islamists may be anti-feminists, they may be anti-gays, they may have all kinds of uh, reservations about them that you detest, actually, but that, that those issues are sort of far away and, and really removed from your everyday experience, so they don't um, strike you as being um, uh, the most relevant to take on. Right. Plus, also, if you're a postmodern strategist and you say, look, suppose we can take over, for example, the United States or Canada, or some incredibly rich, rich, rich nation. Well, that gives us a lot of wealth, and a lot of tools, and a lot of power at our disposal. And uh, you know, you know, as as serious a challenge as Islamism is, we can probably beat it with those resources at our disposal. So, I I wanted to now move into um, sort of a I'll take take a little bit of an opposite side here, it, just in terms of the interviewer position here. Um, it, the, whenever people come out talking against postmodernism, like you've done, uh, in your book, and I will acknowledge that you've done a really good job of laying out the intellectual history going back both far before postmodernism and up until, um, our current times in, in the book, uh, yeah. the critiques always come out like, well, oh, it, you can't really define postmodernism as a coherent movement because it naturally eludes these kinds of definitions, so there's no way that you can box it in. And yeah. um, there's an additional layer to that, which is like, well, some of the postmodern thinkers that you identify uh, wouldn't even uh, self-identify as belonging to that cohort. Um, and then I guess the, the last critique that comes up that seems to be the most poignant and the one that I keep hearing, um, particularly from this group called the metamodernists, who are sort of attempting to incorporate postmodernism into a more, I guess, holistic or diverse um, framework for, from viewing the world, is that while the postmodernists actually did did make some valid points in the critiques that they made, and that it, we shouldn't just throw away the whole project or dismiss the whole project because of the fact that um, there have been some excesses. How do you respond to those criticisms? Yeah. Well, you're right that uh, you know, built into postmodernism is a resistance to generic labels. So if you're skeptical about meta-narratives, you're skeptical about big concepts that claim to be able to divide and categorize the world neatly and cleanly uh, and, and communicate uh, validly information about the way the world really is, so postmodernism, the label, is a very broad general label that we are using, and it's claiming to pick out some features of the intellectual world and to say that there is a more or less cohesive set of intellectual views that hang together, That uh, and uh, th this is a good label for that. So there's a lot of argumentation that needs to be uh, built into that, and of course people are going to argue each step along the way. So to the first point, what I would say is, uh, you know, if I want to say, I and other people, that there is an important and fundamental similarity uh, between 
Rorty, Foucault, Derrida, and say Lyotard on the status of concepts or the status of propositions or the possibility of objectivity. And we say, you know, Rorty says objectivity is impossible. Foucault says it's impossible. They all say that it's impossible. Uh, and they are giving similar arguments for its impossibility, then that is a valid basis for saying here are a group of important thinkers who are rejecting in an informed way objectivity as a fundamental principle. Mm. And it makes sense to say that if one of the great claims of modernist and enlightenment philosophical work has been to try to articulate a positive account of objectivity, then a group of thinkers who are aware of that attempt at articulation and have criticized it and have reached the negative conclusion is to say, well, they are moving beyond the modern position on that viewpoint. They are rejecting objectivity. They are, uh, whereas objectivity was part of modernism, they are postmodern in their rejection of objectivity. But then at the same time to say, you know, there also is a whole other cohort of thinkers who have been attacking the modern claim of objectivity as a source of important knowledge, but they are arguing that instead to get true knowledge, we need to go back to mystical claims and revelatory claims and traditional claims. Those are the great repositories of true knowledge of the world. Uh, we, and they reject objectivity on those grounds. And we say, well, those people are making a similar set of philosophical claims. We're going to say, call those pre-modern. Uh, then it seems a, a perfectly appropriate high-level abstraction to say there's a pre-modern epistemology. That's a certain kind of rejection of objectivity. There's a modern epistemology that is valorizing objectivity and a postmodern one that is rejecting both the pre-modern approach and the modern approach, and that is a third distinct alternative. So you make the case with respect to, to, uh, to objectivity epistemologically. Then you have to do the same thing with respect to, to values. You know, where do values come from? Well, one position says they come from a higher dimension and are delivered through revelation and so forth. Another says, well, it's based on certain natural facts about human nature and, and survival or whatever. And then a third position that is rejecting both of those fundamentally and saying values are group subjective creations. And if you've got a number of people who are all saying no values are group, group subjective creations and giving similar arguments for that, then at a level of abstraction, that's perfectly appropriate to group them into, into, uh, into that one category. Now, at the same time, it is true that when you're looking for similarities, you also have to pay attention to the differences. So just as you know, all of the classic Enlightenment thinkers, you know, John Locke and Voltaire and any other numbers, they, uh, of others, uh, you know, for all of the similarities between them, there are differences there, and those have to be attended to. For all of the ways in which Christianity and Islam and Judaism are all, you know, pre-modern, supernaturally oriented philosophical systems, there are differences there. And the same thing is true of the postmodern thinkers. Uh, there are differences between Rorty, Foucault, Derrida, and Lyotard, and uh, in some cases those are pretty important differences. But I just don't think that they are fundamental. I think the fundamentals uh, put them all into the same category. Now, the final issue was about metamodernism, and and here I've had some uh, kind of unfruitful discussions with uh, two people on uh, on back and forth with text and Facebook uh, who were enthusiastic about metamodernism, and I do have to say that after more than an hour of discussing with both of them, I had no clear idea what metamodernism was. Mm. I, I, I got the, from them the point that you were making that metamodernism wanted to say that there's a lot of good in modernism and that there's a lot of validity to the postmodern critique of modernism, but I could never get clear what the, uh, the critiques were that were thought to be legitimate and how metamodernism was 
a distinct uh, moving beyond either of those paradigms. So mm. please feel welcome to, uh, get, to get to specifics, what the critiques are, and, uh, and we'll talk about them. Well, so I, I'm not a modern metamodernist myself, so I won't claim to be speaking on behalf of that um, particular no. ideology. But I, I will say I will say that, you know, upon thinking about it a little bit further, I think they're, the, the main thrust of it, at least from the metamodernists that I've talked to, is just that um, the, the critique of postmodernism does have some validity in the sense of, uh, you know, um, the, the subjective nature of the way in which human beings experience reality, the fact that we're all sort of um, mediating our, our experience of the world through a perceptual framework that's sort of impossible to get out of. And so this creates, I guess, a seed of doubt around the idea of any kind of, you know, common narrative. Um, but my intuition on this, and I, I haven't thought it through quite well enough to to know if this is a, a fact, is that this is something like like Zeno's paradox. Um, you know, like to get somewhere, you have to get halfway there and then to get somewhere else, you have to get halfway, you know, mm -hmm. to, and so on and so forth in that in that it's almost like a, a linguistic or a conceptual um, paradox that's kind of built into how they're describing the world rather than necessarily the actual reality itself. Um, okay. I mean, I, I think the most fundamental critique of postmodern of postmodernism is just that there uh, that there appear to be objective facts and that everything that we understand, for example, about um, science and mathematics and its predictive power would indicate to us, that there is some kind of objective reality we we obviously can't know that a hundred percent for for sure mm -hmm. um but it, it seems to me like it's sort of falling into a little a little bit of its own um of its own uh, sort of a linguistic trap rather than actually describing um this this the state okay. of our circumstance all right. Well, that, that's that's illuminating. Then there's a lot packed into your uh, your description there. Uh, it, it strikes me that the, the important concepts there are the concepts of subjects and subjectivity and objects and objectivity, and that's where the hard work really needs to be done. Um, and I think, unfortunately, there's just a lot of linguistic confusion right surrounding both of those concepts, and that may be another level here. Mm. But Everybody, I think, agrees, not, not actually not everyone, but many of the postmodernists are exceptions to this, that we are individuals and we are at a particular place, at a particular time in our experiences of the world. So if all that you mean by subjective is that everyone is a unique individual with experiences that are not shared by other individuals, then that's not particularly controversial. Mm. Uh, and that's one sense of subjective that is floating around out there. But if you want to say, in addition to that, every individual in their particular space and time is not actually experiencing an object of reality that what they are experiencing is some sort of subjective creation in their own heads, and it's not possible for them to get past that to experience actual objective reality. That is a different sense of subjectivity. So mm -hmm. it's one thing to say that we are subjective individuals with our own experience. It's another thing to say that we are individuals trapped inside our own heads. So I think the first thing I would ask is uh, the meta-modernist position. Is it just focusing on individual subjects and diversity, or are they focusing on this epistemology of being trapped inside one's head? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's actually um, more likely the latter. Um, they seem to, they call it sort of like putting together a patchwork of narratives where yeah. you sort of can saliently float between different worldviews within your own head and uh, they you kind of treat them as operating systems and you're, you you think of your brain as interoperable between them. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I'm not sure 
if even on a neuroscientific basis, that really quite makes sense since your um, your your perceptions are are, are feedback on uh, how you look at the world. And, and, yeah. and over time, that actually has a biological reinforcement in terms of the, the neural connectivity in your brain and yeah. um, activation triggers and so forth. So it's not like it uh, you, you can just sort of, uh, you know, I mean, they always say like, oh, you, you can um, you can go and you can uh, you can adopt an ideology and you can just do it ironically. Right. Like irony was sort of the 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 height of the manifestation of, of a lot of these ideas and culture that you know we can't ever take anything seriously and nothing mm. is sacrosanct and everything is ironic but of course the trap that you fall into if you enmesh yourself in constant irony is that you can actually end up believing the things that you're saying ironically mm. um, because again you are you are shaping your brain in a real physical sense by uh, by adopting those those perceptions in the world so I, I too am a little bit skeptical about the optimism that the metamodernists have for um, having weaving together this framework yeah no part of that i mean it's another rich set of observations there uh, part of that sounds though at least the first part of it like modernism you know one of the things that the moderns had wanted to say is you know against the pre-moderns who had said you know basically all of the truths have been handed down to us it's all pretty straightforward just learn these propositions and believe them Moderns fought a battle to say, you know, in fact, there are multiple perspectives out there uh, individually and culturally, and we probably need to unlearn and relearn a lot of things. Uh, and then when we are approaching the world with fresh eyes, chances are good that when we look at the world uh, at this time, uh, we're going to get a certain amount of information, but it's really valuable to come back at things from different angles and uh, you know, try things from different perspectives and so on. So all of that just sounds like normal modernist heuristic in creative thinking, outside the box thinking, right, and so forth. So the question then would be, do you think that if you go through that process well, using the tools of experimentation and logic and so forth, you can abstract uh, propositional knowledge that you would say is true and objective. Uh, and the modernists want to say, obviously that can be a lot of hard work in some cases, but yes, in fact, we can do so. Or is it the case, and this might be the metamodernist position, I don't want to, again, put words in their mouth, that really it's just an unending a uh, process of trying out different perspectives and uh, and, and uh, reworking the jigsaw puzzle, but you're never going to uh, reach a position of saying, I know something or this is true. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's leave the metamodernists aside here. I know that we're uh, we're getting close to wrapping up this conversation. Ah, so fair. I've got a, a few more um, a few more questions I want I want to get to. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but this guy, uh, Daniel Schmachtenberger, recently um, made a claim that uh, part of the reason why we're seeing so much of this postmodern theory that's, um, I'm just going to say, infected um, a lot of our um, political discourse is actually due to the fact that it was purposefully upregulated within activist circles um, in the 1960s and 70s by essentially agent provocateurs. He cited the CIA's COINTEL Pro program um, in order to render these cultural movements ineffective. Have you seen any kind of evidence of that? Uh, I have to say no. I think I've heard the name that you mentioned before, but I've not read anything uh, by him, and mm -hmm. I, I'm not familiar with that hypothesis. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure where it came from. I just, I heard that um, a little bit ago, and I, I'm somewhat familiar with, uh, obviously I'm aware that the CIA was infiltrating um, various, as well as the FBI, it was infiltrating various kinds of uh, left-wing revolutionary movements around that time. So I, I, I don't doubt that there was infiltration and that there was some form of sabotage. Um, but I haven't seen any evidence that the 
you know, the rise in postmodern theory being applied within these circles to their sort of cultural wars uh, was a result of of some kind of, you know, conspiracy governmental interference. Um, yeah, well, I was just um, wondering if you had dug up anything related to that. Uh, I'm sure there may have been something that I know uh, governments are always involved in uh, trying to shape culture through various institutions and so on. But my reading, uh, certainly of postmodernism, is that it is uh, a higher education institution first and foremost, particularly in the United States, uh, that it was brewed inside universities mm -hmm. and then uh, left the walls of the universities. So I would need to see some, uh, I don't know, mechanisms in place saying, you know, the CIA is through various shell organizations funding the research of particular individuals and um, you know, absent that, I'm a little skeptical. Now, outside of the universities, you know, you know, unquestionably, there's you know, all sorts of cultural sectors with their hands out and receiving grants and subsidies of this, that, and the other thing. So, um, I would just be uh, interested in reading a, a nice short summary of it with some evidence. Yeah, me, me as well. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to drop that one there, and then. Um... The other thing I just I, I just wanted to ask you, uh, I know um, we had planned on, I mean, there's a number of different avenues we could go down. I'd love to talk to you sometime about entrepreneurship, about uh, your views on objectivism as well. Yeah, know, that'd be great. All yeah. of those things yeah. tie into your background. Uh, but, another one in six months or so. Yeah, yeah. But before I let you go, um, one last thing. How do you think, what do you think is the best way to counter these sort of anti-social, anti-civilizational, really anti-reason movements within our current culture. Um, yeah. We see, we can see the results of this postmodern critique being unleashed on the world. We see it adopted within various cultural movements and within the rhetoric that they display. How do you think is the best way that we can combat this? Yeah. Well, I, you know, my view is that Primarily bad philosophy got us into the mess, so only good philosophy is really going to get us out of the mess. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, I think that a lot of people who are attracted to postmodernism, they can come to postmodernism with all of its skepticism and cynicism by being well-meaning, intelligent people who read up on some arguments and come to be convinced by them. But I do also think that there are, unfortunately, a lot of young people who come out of their formal education and their parenting, and they are really unprepared for taking on the modern world. We live in a very uh, entrepreneurial culture, a very scientific and high-tech culture, one that puts a great deal of demands for self-responsibility on people. And I think, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who, by the time they are young adults, are afraid. They, they recognize that they are not in a position to take on the world and make a go of their lives. So they have all of the doubts uh, that we normally have, but to a much higher degree because they have been underprepared and in some cases actually damaged. And so I then think that there is a, a psychological uh, uh, soil that can make people uh, uh, predisposed to an ideology that says you are not going to succeed, the powers that be have it in for you, no matter what you do, you're going to get beaten down, uh, that you come from some sort of group that's a, that is a victim group, and uh, uh, as a result of that, you're not going to be able to succeed in your life. And those are uh, uh, seductive, but at the same time, very disempowering messages that can fall on the, uh, the, the psychologically underprepared people. When those people go off to university, if they receive those messages systematically by articulate people, it can be, uh, it can be very damaging. So that's led me to think that part of the battle is not just high theory in philosophy, although I think that's the most important long-term battle, but a lot of it has to do, uh, or a lot of the battle has to do with better education and better parenting. That uh, I think the school systems right now are not at all good for teaching people how to be entrepreneurial, 
how to uh, take on a complicated scientific, uh, technological, global society. Instead, much of schooling is telling people to sit in rows and be quiet and uh, ask permission to do things and uh, uh, pass the test with, uh, with, with rote answers. And, uh, you know, a dozen years of that is not going to prepare anybody for living in the modern world. Yeah, most certainly. Well, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me today. This has been really enlightening for myself, and hopefully it will be for uh, much of our listeners as well. If you want to see uh, more of Stephen's work, you could check him out at www.stephenhicks.org. You can also follow him on Twitter at srchicks. Stephen, we really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. I, I thank you for the intelligent questions and for the uh, for the invitation. It was a pleasure.